So uh, we left off last week. Uh, we covered a large portion of the book of Hebrews, covering all of chapters 8 and 9 and half of 10, which was, uh, at first I thought would be more than I could chew, but I think it was very clear in what we were trying and endeavoring to show uh, in those particular chapters. As the writer has sort of culminated his argument, he's shown that Jesus is a better priest that is similar to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and the reason why that's important is because of what our priest does. That's essentially, if he could summarize all of chapters 8, 9, and 10, that's essentially what he's arguing for. He's contending for what our priest does. What makes him better? Well, essentially, it's just the very fact that he is the priest who is also the offering. In that amazing moment where you could almost imagine the cross being the holy of holies. That's where our priest and sacrifice become one. And he sheds his blood for us. And that once for all sacrifice of himself serves for us as the basis for literally everything else. And essentially that brings us all the way to this halfway point essentially of chapter number 10. Where we reach what we could call the turn. Nearly every New Testament letter has this sort of turn somewhere in it. It's a common pattern of writing. The turn, if you will, is when a writer suddenly will shift from talking about the facts of the faith to now talking about the reasons why those facts are important, the reasons why those facts are relevant. For example, but just by way of just getting your minds into what I'm talking about, Ephesians chapter 4. If you remember, Ephesians 1 through 3 are glorious, illustrious chapters talking about the glories of Christ, the riches of his love and the redemption that was there from before the foundation of the world. And then what does Paul say in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians? He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the turn. He's saying based on everything that I've just told you. Everything that I've just talked about. Based on all of that. Therefore, this is what that means. That's the turn. There's a lot of examples of this. Romans 12.1, Colossians 3.1. Lots of examples of where all of these incredible truths and doctrines are profound, are pro, uh, professed, they're proclaimed, and then therefore, in light of all of that, that means this. That's essentially what's happening. To be technical, if you want to have some technical jargon to go along with that, what this looks like is the writer is going to suddenly stop talking in the indicative mood, and suddenly he's going to start talking in the imperative mood. And all that basically means is in an imperative mood of talking is, 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 is this matter of fact sort of stating what's true. That's what he's been doing in Hebrews through all of these chapters. He's stating what's true. He's matter of factly showing them that Jesus is better. These are the, again, the facts. These are what's true about the Christian faith. It's all of what Jesus has accomplished. Again, verse 19, notice how he frames this. Therefore, brothers, notice this very matter-of-fact statement. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. You can see he's building up to this turn. 
He's summarizing in a couple of verses again all of those great imperatives that he's just spent nine and a half chapters going through. These are the things that are certain. These are the things that we can be confident in. And now he's going to shift from talking about those indicatives to now talking about these imperatives. These are when those facts are brought and applied to you and for you. Since these things are true, therefore we should do this or that. You can almost imagine the writer answering the proverbial question, okay, so what? What do we do now? So what do those facts mean? And what do they mean for us? And what sort of impacts should those facts have on you and on me? And what should change in light of those facts being true? Those are essentially the questions that he's seeking to answer. And long, to make a long story short, those facts mean everything. And they change everything too, as he says, again, verse 22, let us draw Near. Notice verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, and let us consider. These are the facts of the gospel and they have far-reaching implications for you and I, for the life of the church. What he's going to talk about from here to the end of chapter 19, or chapter uh, 10, excuse me, are very pressing, very urgent truths. Regardless of age, not just for the church that was back then, but also for the church right now. So let's answer his question. What does it mean that Jesus is our priest? Okay, let's, he spent nine and a half chapters talking about this. Let's just give him the fact that that's true. (laughs) It is true. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our priest? Well, I think there's three things that I think appear within this text. Three things that it means for us now that we know the good news. Yes, the truly life-alteringly astounding good news that Jesus is our priest. What does that mean? It means, number one, we shouldn't withdraw. We shouldn't withdraw. Notice verse number 22 again. Let us draw near, he says. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The very first imperative, the very first thing that he stresses now here, that because of all these facts are true, that means you have the freedom, you have the freedom to approach God himself. That's what this this invitation means. You are invited to draw near, to come close to the place where God is found. Of course, that is meaning to the holy of holies itself. And as he says, we are invited to draw near, as he says in verse 19, confidently, since we have confidence when we draw near. We do not do so walking on eggshells. When you go before the Lord Jesus in prayer, when you are communing with God the Father in that sanctuary of of your prayer time, you do not do so timidly or afraid or tremblingly. You do so with confidence. And the same I could say here this morning. When you walk into this place known as the church, you don't do so walking on eggshells. Well, God... Accept me? 
Does God love me? Perhaps those questions are running through your head. But those questions were answered for you, my friends. Once and for all. On the cross. <laughs> Therefore, what does that mean? It means that we can get close to God the Father. In what? In full assurance of faith. That means without even the slightest thought of hesitation or apprehension. Draw near. Come close. Confidently. Boldly. You know what that word confidence literally means? It literally means frankness, unambiguous, unreserved speech. Why can we be so unreserved? Why can we be so bold? He tells us, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus It's the blood of Jesus that washes us, that sanctifies us, that makes us clean as he talks about in verse 22 that we just mentioned. It's this blood that sprinkles our hearts clean from an evil conscience in our bodies and makes them pure, washes them pure with pure water. Again, what is, he, what is he trying to get into this church's mind? Is that since, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are invited to draw near to God the Father. We are no longer among those whose path to God is riddled with obstacles, with priests and rituals and sacrifices. The way to God, the way to commune with the creator of the universe is clear. Why? Because Jesus, our priest, has opened for us a new and a living way. The way of Jesus knows nothing of restricted access. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. The old way, the way of the tabernacle, the way of the law was a way of communing with Jehovah God, and yet it was beset by barriers and restrictions. To draw near to God, what was required? Well, you were required to follow a strict ceremony involving washings and offerings and sacrifices and and burning incense. And then, if you were among the common folk, so to speak, you were only allowed to enter into a certain area. You were allowed to go in, yes, but it was only a certain spot. You were only allowed to go so far. You had to stay within the limits that were set upon you. Unless, of course, you were one of the priests, you could go a little bit further. And unless, of course, you were the high priest, then you were allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. But then even that, you were under very strict restrictions. Because you were only allowed to go in there one day a year. And if you tried to contravene that, you would be struck dead on the spot. The point is this, is that when Jesus offered himself, when Jesus, the priest, sacrificed himself, sacrificed himself and shed his blood on that horrible, wretched cross that is now our glory, all those barriers were removed. You and I, here, sitting right here this morning, have unhindered, unrestricted access to God the Father. Have you ever thought about that? 
unrestricted access to the one who spoke and the worlds were formed. That's what you have been given. That's what Jesus has opened for you. When you walk into the church, you don't do so with a second thought. That fact alone would probably leave every Old Testament saint scratching their heads. It would leave them utterly speechless. The freedom of access that you have to God. You have the full completed revelation of God's word sitting in front of you. You have access to the holy of holies. Because of what Jesus has accomplished. Imagine what an Old Testament saint would, would say. When they find out that some believers of Yahweh weren't making use of that access. They weren't taking advantage of that freedom. Can you imagine what they would say? What? Why would you not? That's sort of the point in verse 24. Where he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some within that church had already started to withdraw. They were pulling back. Maybe maybe it was because they were feeling so perplexed by all the false gospels. You know, in that day there was a ton. There was uh, just as much as today perhaps. There was uh, so many false doctrines being propounded by those around them. Leaving the church to feel greatly perplexed. Or maybe it was the pressure that they had felt. Because society was, was looking down on them. Or maybe it was all the persecution they witnessed. Whatever it was, it was causing many, some within this congregation, to withdraw, to pull back, to suddenly start to slowly but surely step away from that all-important assembly of God's saints. So much so that it had become a habit. It had become routine, something that they didn't really think twice about. To neglect that assembly, to neglect that gathering, that, uh, that gathering of the church. They were shrinking back from it. They were staying away from it. And the point of the writer is that they're staying away from the very things that Jesus, their priest, is wanting and delighting to give them. <laughs> That's the writer. That's why the writer insists later on in the chapter, notice verse 35, that they don't throw away this confidence. You have all the confidence in the world that you can go into the presence of God without fear, without trepidation. And he says in verse 35, notice, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
Again, he's reminding them of where their confidence lies and what that confidence means. Don't shrink back. Don't withdraw. You have all the confidence in the world. And it comes because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And yes, as he mentions in verse 38, because of what he will one day do. Therefore, don't, don't shrink back, don't withdraw, don't pull back. Rather, as he says, endure, press on, and live by faith. This is what your priest has accomplished for you once for all. There's no better place to build or to strengthen your faith in, in this place. It's the place Of the church, the place where everyone else is living by faith too. (laughs) That's why we're here. This is why we are called to draw near to God, yes, but also to one another. As he says in verse 25, draw together to one another all the more. It's this idea of increasing frequency. As you see the day approaching, you need more, not less, of church. (laughs) Jesus' church has every reason to meet together and share in the facts of our faith. It's easy sometimes, I think, to let other things drag us down and cause us to want to withdraw. All the effort that's put in. The people that annoy you. The people that you sit next to and they might smell funny. Maybe not this morning. Hopefully not. The people who sing off key. There's little things that can pop up and it makes us want to withdraw sometimes. It makes us feel like, man, what are we doing? Anyone I think that wants to withdraw from the church, and I'm not just saying this church, but the church itself in general. I think they've forgotten all of the great facts of their faith. They've forgotten the fact that they have a priest who covers them under blood. And that now they live by faith. And the person next to them that sometimes might say things that makes them uh, get rubbed the wrong way. That person is living by faith just as much as you are. We have a priest, my friends, who has sacrificed himself in order to make us clean, make us whole, make us his. That's who you are. Every single person in this room, if you believe that Jesus is your Savior and that He saved you through the blood that He shed on the cross, you are a child of God right where you sit. We covered this a couple of weeks ago, and I just, in, in Sunday evening. 1 John 3, 1, this verse is amazing. Listen to what John says. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. That would be one thing. This verse is meant to inspire the believers that John was writing to, to just reflect, ponder, see the love that God has showered on you, that you could be called a child of God. But then he follows it up with this awesome phrase, and he says, and so we are. Which is just to say, that's indicative of you right now. It's a matter of fact that because of your faith in Jesus Christ and because of what he's done, you are a child of God right where you sit and so is the person next to you. Everyone here 
can say that same thing. You've been adopted into the family of God by the blood of his only begotten son. My friends, do not withdraw from that. Do not let what the world might offer lead you to withdraw, lead you to pull back. Here in this place, there is a family of God that is being built up and strengthened together. Because Jesus is our priest, we shouldn't withdraw. Number two, because Jesus is our priest, we shouldn't waffle. We shouldn't waffle. You know, sometimes seeing those around you choose to pull back, choose to withdraw from that all-important gathering of God's people, like what we're doing here this morning, seeing that, that can be unnerving, can't it? That can be sometimes disconcerting to suddenly see empty pews next to you where, son, where before there used to be a person there. But as the writer said previously, this withdrawal is not a sudden thing. It's not all of a sudden that the people have decided to withdraw and take themselves out of the gathering of God's people. Those who were withdrawing, as he said previously, were those whose faith was already wavering. It was already being shaken. He said that to us back in chapter 2, if you remember. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you remember what he says. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. He's been hinting at this point all throughout this letter. That there was a drift that had crept into this church, causing some to, to loosen their grip on what they believed And this is why the writer is urging them to hold fast to their confession. As he says back in verse 24 of chapter 10, or verse 23, excuse me. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without waffling. Hold fast. Cling to what you believe. I think sometimes, and maybe I didn't do it justice. Because I think we should read this verse with all of the passion that I think the writer wrote it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is his truest, his deepest desire for these Hebrew congregants. As they're in a church, in a time, in a place where it was unpopular to be Christian. So much so that you might lose your life for it. He says beyond all of that, hold fast, cling to the confession, cling to what's true, cling to what Christ has accomplished, cling to the indicatives of your faith, to the facts. (laughs) What was at stake if they started to waffle though? What was at stake if they started to waver in what they believed? Well, he tells us in verse 26 down through verse 31 as he says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These stakes sound quite serious and so they are. Like the passage though in chapter 6 that we covered a couple weeks ago. Some have read this particular section as being a section that leads to the conclusion, again, that the church and those in it can lose their salvation. It's much like that chapter in chapter 6 that we covered. And if you skim this paragraph, if you skim it quickly, you'll probably be led to believe the same sort of thing. There's lots of scary words and phrases that the writer uses. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's telling this church that... After all of the time that he spent to sow the seeds of assurance of their faith, he's not suddenly casting doubt upon what he has sown. Surrounding their salvation and what it is in and how long their salvation endures. I think rather what he's doing, he's amplifying the importance of the church itself. Yes, by intensifying what's at stake if we withdraw from it. What happens if we start to pull back? What happens if we say we no longer need it? Similar to what he said before, I don't think this includes losing salvation, but it does include losing God's blessings. As we said back in chapter 6, you and I, the church, those who believe in Jesus by faith and are justified by faith, we live and we experience the blessings of the justified life as we live by faith with other sinners who've been justified. That, in a nutshell, is what the church is. Sinners who've been justified by faith living the justified life, sometimes messily. Sometimes not perfectly, but even so, they're doing so by faith. What happens if you withdraw from that? What happens if you pull back from that? What are you expecting? A habit of withdrawal, he says, leads to a pattern of sin, as he says deliberately in verse 26. Which does nothing but leave God's spirit outraged, as he says in verse 29. Which is a word which literally means insulted. By waffling and withdrawing from the very place of God's blessing, from the very people of God's blessing, that is the church, you are likewise aligning yourself with those whose future, as he says, is nothing but an expectation of judgment. You're punting on what God has designed and how God has designed the faith to work. You know, you're not here just for you. Yeah, I pray that you receive something from God's word when you come into church and that you are changed by the spirit of the living God. But you're not just here for yourself. You're here for your neighbor too. Just like God's blessings to Israel weren't meant to just stop on Israel. They were meant to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was meant to be a conduit of what Yahweh would bless the world with. And likewise with you and I here this morning. That yes, we as a church are not just meant to receive the good news of God's gospel. And the facts of our faith and just cloister ourselves in this place. And not let that seep out onto others. That's the point. 
The blessings of God's beloved gospel overflow and spill out of us onto others. And the same, we could even bring it down even further to you individually. That the blessings of God's gospel that has justified you by faith because of what your priest has done is meant to be a, you are meant to be a conduit of that very same blessing to others. And you do so when you gather. You do so when you're together with God's people. To withdraw from the church of this living God, you are effectively saying that you are capable of living the justified life by yourself. You don't need God's people. You don't need God's support. You don't need their fellowship. And that, of course, I think is more than a little foolish. Of course you need God's people. Of course you need God's support and the people of God's fellowship as you strive to live by faith. To say otherwise makes about as much sense as to say, I love God, but I don't really love the church. Have you ever heard that before? (laughs) Don't raise your hand, but have you ever said that before? (laughs) I get where it comes from. I love God, but I don't love the church. It comes from a place of hurt. It comes from a place of great and deep wounds. But it doesn't make sense biblically. God gave up his life for the church. To say that we don't need it is to say that essentially we don't need what God sacrificed his life, his very son's life for. And I get it. Perhaps you've been burned by churches. (laughs) I have too. Perhaps we all have, and to some degree or another. We don't need to go comparing burns. <laughs> but maybe those burns are still affecting you. And that's what's made you waffle in what you believe. And so much so that you even feel like withdrawing. You even feel like pulling back because of how deep those hurts and those wrongs are. You can't get over what Jane or Joe or whoever said. <laughs> You can't seem to shake how they greeted you or didn't greet you. You can't seem to shake what type of rumors they started spreading. To you, I repeat the same words of the Hebrew writer. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Cling to what is true. To what is certain. That truth, that certainty of what your priest has accomplished for you cuts through whatever garbage, whatever burns you might feel. And what is that? What is that certainty? It's that the blood of the Lamb has been poured out on you by faith and that now you are a son or a daughter of the living God. That's true no matter what anyone else says. No matter what people say about you. No matter what people say to you. No matter what people do or don't do. As he says in verse number 34, this amazing verse. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Your better abiding possession is what God has already proclaimed that you are. You are His. That doesn't change. That cannot be changed. You know, in March, there was an incredibly unique gathering of people in downtown Manhattan. There was a party that happened. There was, it kind of went viral, and so much, and so, so much so, in fact, that the New York Times did a profile on this party, which is odd. And I think the reason why they did a profile on it is because the only key to get into this party was very exclusive. You had to be named Ryan. Not Brian. Not, no, Ryan. Only Ryan's allowed. If you were named Ryan, no matter what your gender was, no matter what your occupation was, no matter where you lived, you could come to downtown Manhattan and get into this party and have a good time where, as it says, I don't know what this means, but you could get together and and hear about, quote, big, important Ryan topics. (laughs) Don't know what that is. But I love what one of the attenders said in this interview with the New York Times One attendee said, quote, It's the most random, obscure, silly thing. A gathering where we are all wearing the exact same name tag. What more can you ask for? (laughs) I thought about that. You know, that's what we are this morning. We're all Ryans. (laughs) Oh, even better. We are all forgiven. That's what our name tag says. That's what your name tag says. And the person next to you. And yeah, even perhaps the person that you miss this morning because they're withdrawing from the gathering. Even if they believe, you pray for them. When you come to church, you don't have to have something exclusive. The only thing that you come here together to rejoice in is the fact that we all, yes, we all wear the same name tag. We are forgiven and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We shouldn't withdraw. We shouldn't waffle in what we believe. But lastly, number three, because Jesus is our priest, we shouldn't worry. Step back for a second again. It's been a while since we highlighted this fact, so I wanted to take a moment here and do so. Consider again, once again, the the circumstances of this particular letter. It's so important, I think, to put yourself in the sandals of these people in the first century. Because the situation in the first century was worse than awful. Things were incredibly bleak and dire. What with Emperor Nero's unhinged rage, only recently leaving the entire city of Rome somewhat in ashes. With the blame, of course, being laid at the feet of the church. This, of course, resulted in a severe wave of persecution that saw thousands of believers put to death because of what they believed, because of what they confessed. Imagine watching as your friends were dragged into the Colosseum only to be paraded around as a snack for a pack of lions because they said that they believed that that teacher who was tried and crucified as a traitor and blasphemer was in fact the Christ. Imagine watching that go down. Imagine experiencing the grim days that those days were. 
The pressure to waver and withdraw. The pressure to pull back from what that gathering was all about. That was immense. The pressure to withdraw and quit the church. To quit the faith. Was perhaps more than perhaps we can even imagine. And I think this is why the writer reminds them. In verse 23 of our text. That their confession what they believed. Wasn't tethered to anything but a person. Notice verse 23 where he says this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. It's not an amorphous thing that we believe in. It's not just an ambiguous truth. That when you come through the threshold of church. You come as a person who is cleansed and redeemed and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. You do so because there is a person who says that it is so. As we've said before and as he is again here evidencing. The promises of God are promises that God keeps. Therefore, they can't be revoked. They can't be rescinded. That's how sure your belief is. He who calls you, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, is faithful. He will surely do it. And what has God, what has God in Christ promised to do? Well, he tells us, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a definitive promise. It's not much room for leeway. Not much room for argument on what Christ is meaning. It means that his church, so long as Jesus is alive, which is forever, his church will endure. And I'm 100% confident, I didn't take a time machine and check, but I'm 100% confident that the folks in the days of the first century were a little bit worried about that saying. (laughs) I guarantee you there were folks who were worried about the longevity of the church as they see everyone around them being thrown to the lion's den. (laughs) Being pegged up on stakes and used as human torches. You think that would shake people's faith? You think that would make people worry? Probably. But it's also led me to think, has there ever been a time when the church seemed more in doubt? I don't know, probably not. Interestingly though, the writer is making them think about it. He says in verse 32, notice, he says, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, again, I take the the later date. Again, this is getting technical and maybe you don't care about this. But I take the later date when it comes to the writing of Hebrews. Which means I think that when he's recalling the former days, he's remembering the times when Peter and Paul have already been martyred. A couple years before this moment is that awful summer of 64 when Nero did what he did and blamed the church. And the persecutions just exploded. So when he says, I take him to mean, remember that time a couple of summers ago? How awful it was? Continuing verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes you were sharers, partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. 
And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. (laughs) Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's reminding them. Purposefully reminding them of the hard struggles that they went through. Why? Because he wants them to realize that what God and Christ has promised eclipses all our worries. Despite how tenuous, despite how doubtful it might have appeared, God was and still is building his church. He was telling them that. The writer was telling these Hebrew Christians who are seeing fires all around. Perhaps they could even smell the smells of persecution just outside their door. And he's telling them, yes, remember how awful it was, but also do you remember what God has promised? He's promised to build his church. And that promise will never be revoked. Look at what you've went through and you're still here. Despite how worrisome those days were, those Hebrew believers were called to put their faith in the faithful one whose words are eternally sure. As he says again in verse 23, he who promised is faithful I think these words are, in, are deeply, incredibly applicable to where we are right now. As worrisome as our own day might seem, we have the same promise, the same assurance given to us through God's words. You and I, the church, we were never promised easy sledding for confessing the fact that Jesus is the Christ. As a close friend of mine just said recently in an article he wrote, any close study of the church should lead us to marvel that the church still exists at all. Throughout all the ages, if you do a study in church history, that's what you'll find. That more often than not, the, the life of the church has been put in the balance. It's been hanging by a thread. <laughs> There's never been an ideal time or an opportune era to believe in Jesus. There's never been better days that we need to get back to that will make our faith be easier. <laughs> but regardless of... The circumstances, the words of the writer are eternally true that no matter what's going on around us, we need not withdraw, we need not waffle, we need not worry because Jesus is our priest, he's the priest of the church and he himself is the one who is ensuring its longevity. All kinds, maybe I depressed myself, I don't know. All kinds of surveys I read, not just recently, but even this past week and months past, they've had all kinds of surveys and data released. on, And they all say the same thing. If you want a negative headline, church attendance is declining. It's not a unique thing. It's not just a Baptist thing. It's not a Presbyterian thing. It's all churches everywhere, regardless of denomination, regardless of what type of stripe of church you are. It's, it's down everywhere. Involvement is even lower, leaving pastors more stressed out and burned out than perhaps ever before. And reading those reports can really quickly make you question the longevity of the church. Man, what is God going to do? 
Is the church going to make it in the generations to come? What do we do with all those, those young people who are saying they have no religious affiliation at all? What do we do with all these churches that are closing, with all these pastors that are quitting? With, with, what's, what's going on? How worried should we be? I think there's some legitimacy to those questions, and I think it, it should lead us, though, back to the same thing. To Jesus' words in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell can prevail against my church. Not even that. Not even a worldwide pandemic can do it. Not even an epidemic of people losing their interest and involvement in church can do it. I've said this to people before, but and I say it half jokingly, but also half seriously too. My dad always dreams about having this audience of, you know, preaching to Congress one day where he could just gather all of Congress and just preach to them. He, that's my dad's pipe dream. If I had a pipe dream, my pipe dream would be to preach to every single church in the whole world at one time. You know what I would tell them? Just relax. That might sound so flippant and casual. But I think sometimes we are white knuckling over the future of the church when Jesus has already told us that that's not up to us. We can worry ourselves something fierce when we see all kinds of stories, see all kinds of scandals, and yeah, it should make us long for Jesus to come back. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But so long as he endures, so long as he forestalls that moment when the end of all things will come about, so too will his church endure. Therefore, we can relax. We can be uh, unworried. Because the one who holds this earth in the balance is the one who likewise is intervening for the life of his church. No matter who withdraws and who doesn't. No matter who is waffling and who's not. No matter who is white knuckling everything, every single moment as they read story after story after story. Maybe that's the answer. I don't know. Maybe just get off of the internet for a while. Maybe that will lead you to be unworried. Or maybe just don't read the news. <laughs> The point of what I think the writer is here saying to this church. A church who you might know, as we have just covered, was in just the same amount of questionable circumstances as we might feel. Not, we're not being persecuted by the emperor. But we feel the tenuousness of church. We see how shaky it can seem. I think... The same imperatives are given to us. And they're based on the indicatives. Don't withdraw, my friends. Don't waffle. Don't worry. Why? Because Jesus is your priest. Who is living right now for you. Interceding right now for you. And no matter what trouble comes. No matter what turbulence comes. No matter what turmoil. Next year, God help us as an election year. Who knows what's going to come of that? Our confidence 
is secure because of what has already been accomplished. Therefore, what? We are unburdened from building the church. We just have to witness to who its priest is. That's the amazing thing about this sidebar. That's the amazing thing about the Great Commission. He gives it in Matthew 28 and he gives it in Acts chapter 1. Never does he say, go out and build. Go out and fight. What does he say? Go out and witness. (laughs) Make disciples of all nations by telling them what? That I am the Christ of God. Tell them the good news of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Witness to that. That is our commission. Don't withdraw from it. Don't waffle from it. Don't worry about its results. My friends, you have a sure and steady anchor because your priest is alive. He is a living priest who is right now interceding on your behalf. That's why we're here. So to you, I would say, Just relax. God's got this. Let us pray.